Hey, this is Carolyn Pearson, good friend and follower of Lindsay Hanson Park, who is doing amazing and important work with her Year Polygamy podcast. I learned to my horror that Lindsay does not even get the requisite 69 cents on the dollar of what her male counterparts in the world of Mormon podcasts get by way of contribution. Do you believe that? I quote now from the Salt Lake Tribune, God bless the Salt Lake Tribune. Women in Utah receive 69 cents for every dollar paid to men. Now, I'm not saying that Lindsay should get as much as men. After all, she is a mere woman. But come on, let's get her up to the 69 cent mark. I'm a subscriber for 10 bucks a month for the last year or so, and I urge you to do the same. Just jump on that donation button and hopefully that subscription button, and let's make a commitment to that great Lindsay whom I love. Okay, thanks. One, two, three, go. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year Polygamy series where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage and see how it affects our lives today. And I am so excited to have some amazing women on the podcast today. Lori Winder-Stromberg, you know, she's been on the podcast a few times and she's involved with ordained women and has been a longtime advocate for women's ordination. So Lori, can you say hello? Hi. Welcome back. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And I brought you on because uh, you've done some writing on this. I'm, I am referring specifically to your essay in The Persistence of Polygamy, Volume 2, where you wrote Prisoners for the Principle, the Incarceration of Mormon Plural Wives in 1882 to 1890, which was fascinating for me to to discover because I had just kind of always grown up with those pictures of the men in the striped pajamas thinking that... It was the men that went to prison. So we're going to talk about your article. But also with us is someone who I deeply, deeply admire, Sarah Berenger Gordon. Can you say hello? Hello, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, you've been an important influence in my life. You are a professor at the Constitutional Law in Pennsylvania. Is that right? University of Pennsylvania. Yes. Yeah. Um, and tell us more about your background in Mormon studies. All right. Well, I um, began working on issues of law and religion when I was a joint law and divinity school student at Yale. And then when I went on to do a PhD at Princeton, I decided that um, it was time for someone to look at the entire controversy surrounding polygamy from the outside looking in rather than the inside looking out. That's how I came to my topic. Well, you have fascinating take, and like I told you earlier, she is on the one of, you're on several documentaries, but one of them that was really influenced me was uh, the Frontlines, the Mormons for PBS, and so I'll link to that so people can watch you again in action. Terrific. Okay, so today we're going to talk about sort of the laws and legislation um, around polygamy because it absolutely shapes the way that Mormons practice the principle, and it absolutely shapes our, us today. I mean, it, it affected our persecution complex. It affected the families. And we're going to talk about that. Lori's going to 
dig deeper a little bit later because uh, Sarah or Sally, can we call you Sally on the podcast? Please do. Okay, Sally Sally has to jump off to, to do her real world job. So Lori is going to give us some more stories later on. But Lori, do you want to sort of get into the timeline for us and give us some context for what we're going to be talking about today? Right. I thought I'd give you a little bit of an introduction and then uh, we'll let Sally, who's the legal expert, give us, as you say, a sort of timeline of anti-polygamy legislation. So we'll just jump in then, Lindsay. So as you mentioned, the, those sepia-colored photographs of bearded patriarchs in prison garb are, are iconic in Mormon 19th century histories of polygamy. And I think their stories are recognized and repeated often, but a number of women also were incarcerated in the late 19th century for uh, and the uh, plural wives, I, I should be more specific, were incarcerated during the 19th century and, and became the focus of, of, of a lot of, uh, I would say, public controversy over the whole issue of polygamy. And so what I did in my paper was... Um, was document those cases from the uh, from the years 1882 to, to 1890. There were 11 plural wives who served some time in the penitentiary because of their anti-polygamy stances. Many were taken into custody and placed on bond. Uh, I mean, I'll do a little bit of reading here because it, I think it'll be a little help, help helpful to, to set the stage. So a lot were uh, taken into custody and placed on bond for their efforts to shield their polygamist husbands uh, from conviction under anti-polygamy legislation. And um, as I say in my paper, or, or my article, I think their cases merit attention not only because their st- stories, have we've, as we've mentioned, have largely been forgotten, but also because they hold a pre- often precedent-setting place in the history of the anti-polygamy legislative and judicial campaign as sort of examples of of, of the the possibility, the possibilities uh uh, the judicial possibilities of the anti-polygamy legislation. They also are really revelatory as barometers of public sentiment, both Mormon and non-Mormon. They also invite us, and I hope we'll get into this later, Lindsay, the, uh, to consider the problem of plural wives as autonomous agents uh, within a patriarchal religious tradition. And, and they, the cases, because uh, I use a lot of contemporary newspaper accounts to document the cases, one of which portrays them, uh, well, that portrays them as either the heroic, autonomous agents or abused and victimized. So the Mormon plural wives who were incarcerated, most of, most of them were arrested and confined or placed on bond for a variety of polygamy related offenses, including perjury, assaulting a federal officer and fornication. Others were taken into the penitentiary to ensure their presence in the courtroom as witnesses in pending polygamy and unlawful cohabitation trials. Uh, the majority of the women who, uh, whose cases I document were held in contempt of court. Most of them were not first and therefore lawful wives. And so the court deemed them competent witnesses and compelled them to testify. And when they didn't, uh, they were confined for contempt and incarcerated. They could be incarcerated, um, usually often under grand jury proceedings. And so they could, uh, they could be incarcerated for until the judge ordered their release, until the grand jury under which they were being held was discharged, or they agreed to answer all of the questions that the judge deemed appropriate. 
just say something interesting here to me. Uh, And Sally can weigh in on the legal ramifications of this. But if you read the book Polygamy, Prostitution, and Power, you kind of see this tension here with Mormons being, you know, prosecuted and actually jailed for polygamy. And then if you compare that to the prostitution laws and things like that, it's this really interesting thing that Mormon men are being far more over-prosecuted for polygamy than they are for prostitution. And there were plenty of men that, you know, frequented or broke the law, I guess, with prostitution. And so it's just this interesting tension that's going on that's underlying this because Mormons are accusing, you know, Gentiles of being sort of sinful and wild and worldly and... um they're accusing Mormons of doing the same thing. Yes, it, one has actually set up a sting operation using a hooker <laughs> um, to trap um, federal officials, um, and it became a, a huge scandal um, because the the idea that that Mormons would themselves in, engage in these dirty tricks actually uh, caused more problems than than it solved but you get a sense of how deeply how deeply uh, convinced um, the Latter-day Saints were that they weren't being treated fairly in the law oh yeah absolutely yeah uh, I I want to sort of set the stage for for Sally to talk about uh, more in depth about some of the the laws that were what the against the legislative act, acts that were passed against polygamy because in I can find my research to the 1880s because I it, it took a few decades between the time that polygamy was announced publicly in Utah which was in 1852 and the laws were passed and laws were passed that were of sufficient strength to support the ju- judicial machinery that had to be put in place to successfully disrupt the practice of polygamy um, it had been, polygamy had actually been practiced, openly practiced in Utah for 30 years. The first 10 of it, which, uh, is this correct, Sally? The first 10 of which was without federal legislative prohibition? Absolutely. The first federal law was 1862. Yeah. So obviously the Civil War, geographical isolation, and, you know, any number of reasons, Mormon-controlled probate courts and juries, there are, are a few of the contributing factors to why it took so long to gear up the, the legislative and, and judicial campaign against polygamy. And then also uh, leading to the Reynolds case, it took a while. Uh, the question is of whether, and I think this is uh, this information I took from your work, the question is whether Congress actually had the power to legislate the structure of domestic relations, according to you. And the territories had been hotly debated in, uh, in the 1950s because it was a legal category that in the 19th century included the law of master and servant as well as the law of husband and wife. It describes slavery as well as polygamy. So in this, in, in the law, I, I know Mormons are used to hearing uh, the, you know, the, the term, the 19th century term, the twin relics of barbarism, you know, slavery and polygamy. But I found it interesting in your work to know that it was more than just their being appalled at, at both practices, they were actually legally connected in, in some way. Can you talk about that? Of course I could. Thank you, Lori. They were legally and politically connected so that when the Republican Party, its first national convention, called for the abolishment of those twin relics of barbarism in the territories, polygamy and slavery. And they did so 
not only to to show how dedicated they were to uh, to abolishing plural marriage, but also how they wanted to associate plural marriage with slavery. And and boy, didn't they get up the noses of Southern Democrats, who immediately. Uh, blocked any and all anti-polygamy legislation until the outbreak of the Civil War, which is why the first federal statute was only enacted in 1862, because Southern slaveholders understood that action against polygamy would be a precedent for action against slavery. Yeah, and this is interesting because within our own community right now, especially in the Mormon feminist community, we are dealing with sort of these issues of the conflict of like white Mormon feminism with issues of race. And so I do see this interesting tension when, when people try to connect the two, uh, polygamy it, and slavery. It is interesting. And Utah actually was the only territory in the West that legalized both slavery, African slavery, um, and indenture for Native Americans. So it was, it, it really had a unique stance in the West and was of particular interest to the South. And I would like to argue on this podcast that even, you know, people will sometimes say, oh, polygamy is an issue if you had pioneer ancestors, but I don't, so I don't have to worry about this. But actually, I mean, this shows that polygamy actually does color a lot of things, not just polygamy and not just the church. It was affecting national law national legislation. Absolutely it was. And I think it's important to understand that strategically to protect polygamy, the alliance with Southern Democrats was really intelligent and politically savvy. Why don't we, since my study and, and the, the bulk of the, the, uh, of what we're going to talk about later on in the podcast deals with, uh, legislation and the, the, uh, judicial campaign, judicial uh, campaign against polygamy after 1882 and the Edmonds bill was passed, maybe we should give everybody a, a, a little, a sense of some of the legislation that was passed after or during, during or after the uh, conflicts of the Civil War. So uh, the, should we, uh, let's talk about the Poland Act, which is the first act that was, uh, that was passed, that passed Congress. And it was, that was in when, 1862? So it's actually the Morrill Act. I'm sorry. Uh, but you're, no, you're absolutely okay. right. It's the first one, 1862. And that did several things, none of which were effective, but, but let me say what it did. First, it outlawed bigamy, um, by which it meant the marriage of one man to more than one woman. And it also revoked the corporate charter of the LDS church and um, imposed a maximum value um, uh, of property that the church could own of $50,000, which was a lot um, at that at that period, pretty generous. Um, but very different than the law that the uh, Utah Territorial Legislature had passed, which allowed limitless property, put no limit on property. I, I, I should say the law was ineffective for many different reasons. Um, one, I think, is that Congress, apparently the Republican supporters of the act, assumed that if they made bigamy or polygamy, 
illegal that people would actually stop doing it. <laughs> very naive. Right. Um, and they made very little provision for actual enforcement of the act, including problems with the fact that the majority of the population in the territory strongly supported the practice um, and the church that endorsed it. So, so it was impossible to um, get um, um, indictments or begin prosecutions that would actually stick for violation of the law. It was it was an embarrassment to Congress. It became what was called a dead letter, meaning that it never got anything done by the late 1860s. It was clear that nobody obeyed it and nobody considered themselves as um, in danger because they disobeyed the law. So if I can and then, skate on quickly to the Poland Act, or do you sure, want me to stop Absolutely, here? but the other thing is that there was no, and well, go ahead, yeah, actually do that, and uh, and then we'll talk about the Reynolds case after that, because the, plus, you know, the the, the Mormons can, uh, continued to assert their their right their First Amendment rights as well. So and, they and certainly it did. And they certainly tested, did. It wasn't tested until you know over a decade later. So anyway, right. go ahead. The Poland Act is really an act that only a lawyer could get interested in because it reformed um, how juries were called uh, in Utah, taking it away from the local um, the local marshals the, uh, who were who were Mormons, um, and making it for the first time possible for a prosecutor to secure an indictment. And with the passage of the Poland Act, as far as we can tell, there was some kind of discussion between prosecutors and church leaders, and they agreed to a test case. And George Reynolds records in his diary that he was strolling around Temple Square with his second wife um, and was approached by George Q. Cannon, who told him that he had been chosen to be the named defendant in a test case um, to challenge the polygamy law on freedom of religion grounds. So he was, uh, he very carefully composed a list of witnesses against him and, and uh, was arrested uh, and thus began the Reynolds case. Yeah, and so we have the the Poland Act in 1874, and then the Reynolds case in was it uh, in 18 was uh, it, it was began the, in 1874. There were two trials. He finally was convicted in 1875. His case made it to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1878, um, and on January 1879, they sustained the conviction. Right. And what happened to Reynolds? He went, he served time. He served time in jail. He was really depressed. Um, <laughs> uh, but he began a concordance of the Book of Mormon, um, while in jail. He kept, he kept working and, um, kept a very depressed diary, uh, of his time in jail. But when he came out, he got a hero's parade. He eventually went on the underground in the mid 1880s and married a third wife while on the underground. And then uh, the the important, uh, I mean that all of these things are important leading up to it. But at this point, we have where we enter the 1880s, and what would you say then in terms of the legal climate of uh, that brought about the Edmund Edmunds Bill in 1882? Well, yeah, I have to say so. By 1882, 
um, anti-polygamists had been failing for 30 years. I mean, they really had not gotten much done at all. One of the problems was that prosecuting for polygamy, you had to prove a marriage ceremony. And without compliant witnesses, it was very difficult to do that. Um, very few polygamy prosecutions were brought, um, and of those, the conviction rate was very low. So Congress realized they needed a more serviceable legislation, um, and the Edmonds Act of 1882 introduced a much um, easier crime to prove called cohabitation. So if you just lived with someone, um, you could be punished um, at a much lower level than you could be punished for um, actually being convicted of polygamy. But nonetheless, it was much easier to indict many more people and procure convictions. Um, so that was the big innovation of the Edmonds Act. Um, and um, uh, indictments began to skyrocket after 1882, uh, and um, um, Mormon defendants did what they called going on the underground, which I mentioned a moment ago, which is going into hiding um, so that they evaded uh, prosecution. Um, and that is really the beginning of the period that you focus on, Lori, which right. is um, turning against women as well as men in, in the effort to bring in polygamists and um, to secure convictions. Right. And, and that's exactly what, uh, and that's, that's why I begin, um, I begin my study in the 1880s. Um, the first few cases that I examine are, uh, the cases of Annie Galifant, uh, Bell Harris, and Nellie White. Um, because their unwillingness to testify was successful in thwarting the prosecution of their polygamous husbands. Uh, as the, but as the judicial machinery, this was, their, their cases was, were early on in the 1880s, but as the judicial machinery geared up and unlawful cohabitation rather than polygamy became more the, uh, the common charge, as you said, Sally, because it was much easier to demonstrate, the testimony of plural wives became less, less and less important as, as we proceed in, into the, into the later part of the, uh, 1880s. Um, because it, you know, they, they could just keep, um, they could just keep, um, arresting the men over and over and over for unlawful cohabitation. It's also true, I think, and I wonder whether you saw this in your cases as well, that women got much more accomplished at forgetting details. <laughs> it's not that they would refuse to testify. Right. Right. <laughs> right? They got much more sophisticated legally. Yeah, and, and, and though there, there were a few women like uh, a woman named Matilda Lundstedt who was confined in uh, 1886 uh, for uh, for a few days in April 1886. Uh, a number, although some like she were held at the pen, in the penitentiary, sorry, penitentiary um, to ensure her presence in the courtroom as a witness. That happened on occasion as well in like a pending polygamy or unlawful cohabitation trials. No plural wives were in prison for for contempt uh, during during the the period in, uh, between 1886 and 1887, which is interesting. Uh, there's this, and I think that um, thereafter there's sort of this last gasp before the manifesto. Um, uh, uh, there's, there are a few women who were, in, were incarcerated for contempt, but not for long. 
um, because they all testified, they all agreed to testify, and their husbands were convicted. Um, it, it appears that as convictions for unlawful cohabitation became easier to obtain, few other women were, in, uh, I mean, the futility and discomfort of imprisonment um, discouraged women from refusing to comply. Um, and as you said, a lot of them also uh, went on the underground, uh, as just as their husbands often did. So um, my own great-grandfather, if you can let me, uh, great-grandmother, I should say, uh, if, if you allow me a personal story, um, she was one, among those who went on the underground. Uh, she had to, when, when they would get pregnant, they would have to go underground. Uh, because the pregnancy was obviously there, you know, a, something that would, a, you know, a, a visual, uh, evidence, right, of their, well, obviously, a vis- visual evidence, right? They of their think, relationship. Of yeah. their relationship. If I, if I could, Lori, that was how George Reynolds was finally convicted. Um, his second wife was called to testify and she walked down um, uh, uh, the aisle and up into the witness box, very visibly pregnant. <laughs> right. So, so um, a number the, went on the underground. And what was interesting, my, my great grandmother wrote about this in her, in her, uh, uh, in a, in a memoir. And she had, basically, she had to leave when she, every time she became pregnant, she had to leave her children behind. She didn't tell them where she was going. They had no idea. They, she couldn't. And, uh, she, uh, lived sort of hit up with an older Mormon couple. Uh, anyway, so, um. That's really interesting. Yeah. The, the final piece of legislation that I think is, is right. relevant both to your great grandmother's story and to so many other women's is the Edmunds Tucker Act of 1887, which for the first time created a law of adultery in the territory. Um, so a man who was married to a woman, um, uh, not the one, not the one who, um, uh, to more than one woman and that second woman became pregnant, that man could be punished for adultery, a felony, big, big, um, uh, sentence associated with that. And she could be, um, uh, punished criminally for fornication. And almost 200 women were indicted. Do we know, are any of those cases that were indicted, are any of them non-Mormons? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, uh, yes. There are, um, there are a number of fornication, um, prosecutions of a woman named Estella Pueblo, um, who, who clearly entertained many men at her, <laughs> at her residence. I think she may also have been a madam as well as a, prostitute herself, but I'm not sure. So yes, there were always, um, there were also non-Mormon men prosecuted for adultery and for polygamy. So here we see polygamy and prostitution again linked legally. Most definitely. Fornication was the classic crime for illegitimate childbirth and also uh, for um, uh, prostitution. Yes. Now, Sally, this is, I found this really interesting in your book related to this. Uh, between 1887 and 1890, uh, you, you mentioned that there are the uh, 188 indictments of, of plural wives for fornication. None, none was imprisoned and most cases weren't pursued beyond indictment and arraignment, though. 
Right. And this is where sort of legal strategy comes into play because it's a great way to get the husband to show up. If, if you've got the wife, right, under arrest and right. she's pregnant um, and a husband is away on, on the underground um, or uh, many men got sent on missions, for example, uh, to try to get them out of the territory, it's a great way to get a husband to show up. And you can see um, the husband indicted for adultery and the wife uh, for fornication and then a guilty plea following very quickly thereafter for the man. And then the prosecution just dropped against against the plural wife. Yeah. So it's, it's a really cruel strategy in many ways. So basically, I, I, Lindsay, do you have a sense then of how women then were being sort of used? Women actually were being used by both be, that's a little, we'll get into that, that, into that. Are they being used or they're willingly, willingly offering themselves to be used in this, in this struggle, this, the judicial struggle that happened during this period? All I know, Lori, is that, uh, from reading the stories of some of these women whose families were broken up, women are always the losers on this, particularly second or third wives. The first wife usually would come out of this okay. Uh, she would be the one that would end up living with a husband, but it was a second and third wives that really had to fend for themselves. Most definitely. And, and there was one man I can remember reading in the trial records where he said, I'll agree not to have more than one wife, but I choose my second or third wife. Um, and the court said, no, 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 you don't get to do that. You don't get to choose which one you keep. Your first wife is your legal wife. Um, and if you don't want to be prosecuted um, um, as a as an adulterer, you must only stay married to your legal wife. The first wife was privileged in law. Yeah, we just we told a story two episodes ago about a woman named Lorena Larson, and her husband said, "Hey, listen, a bunch of us don't want to go back to prison. That was really rough. We've talked it over, and we've decided that we're going to keep our first wives for time." And we'll pick you up in the attorney. And by the way, keep yourself pure. Don't go messing around. Wait it out, and I'll see you in the next life. Mm. <laughs> rough. Mm. It's rough. <laughs> uh, yes, and also inheritance was very difficult um, yeah. for plural wives. It, it, it was very complicated, and, and often they suffered a great deal. Yeah, and, and I, in, for my study, I used... Um, a lot of what I used were contemporary newspaper accounts, and it's it, and I think that one of the major thing that's things as I as I sort of uh, was leading into before was that was revealed in these newspaper uh, accounts were not only stories of these women but also the changing nineteenth century attitudes about the extent of their agency, and maybe uh, you know after Sally ha- has to go I'll read uh, some of the some of the the their stories. Bell Harris, for example, not only was was her story uh, cataloged in the um, in the contemporary newspaper accounts, but also uh, she kept a penitentiary diary, which is fab, which is really interesting to read. She uh, and and her her brother also left a a, a brief bi- uh, biography, so it was very helpful for my study. Let me. 
You know, I really would love to have your ideas, Sally, on this whole idea of agency. Maybe I should go to the, the sort of ending and we can talk about that a little bit and in the, in the context of the, the uh, how these women were perceived. And then, and then Lindsay, if you want to, I can, I can add some of the actual stories at the end. Does that sound like a good idea? Let me just introduce that. So, the final case that that uh, and I'll introduce it this way: the final case that that ha- that occurs of of a woman being incarcerated is the case of Hester Hendrickson. Uh, she persisted uh, in her refusal to to testify against her husband, and her case is somewhat interesting because she actually there was there was he actually her husband actually married two women in the same day, and so there was a question as to which one was the lawful wife. But she, uh, the judge, uh, uh, required her to testify since, I guess he, he decided since we can't determine who is the lawful wife, neither one will have the privilege of, uh, of not testifying. And so he, he ordered her to testify. And what was, I, the, what the news said about that account, of the, uh, about her, that situation, is I think revealing. Um, on uh, Jan- 18 January, the news reported that although Hendrickson consented to comply after uh, being incarcerated, quote, she does not recede from the legality of her position. She simply yields under extreme pressure. There is no proper place, the news continued, in which to confine females in the penitentiary. An imagination may but fairly depict the mental and physical agony that would be endured by a delicate and respectable woman. Woman. The following year, though, and as we all know, under extreme legislative and judicial pressure, the, the church also capitulated. Although it took a, a while for the church to comply with anti-polygamy legislation, it and it wasn't immediate. The issuance of the manifesto signaled the demise, as we all know, of the controversial practice within the church. So let, let's get to this issue of agency. Uh, there is a tendency in the discourse surrounding Mormon plural wives to see them either as heroic, autonomous agents or victims of an oppressive religious tradition. Uh, this is particularly true of, but not confined to, the 19th century polemics in the cases that, that, that I examine my paper. Both narratives, I think, are problematic. Um, the former fails to recognize the very real constraints on women's agency within a patriarchal polygamous community, while the latter insists that women can only demonstrate agency by resisting the norms of such a community. And so the cases I think these case, the cases that in my in my study highlight the dichotomy, this dichotomy. And if, Sally, if you don't mind, I'm going to read a passage from your book. Um, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it's a perfect uh, introduction to this sort of from the legislative stuff for the from the judicial uh, information to this this idea of agency. I think at one level, writes Sarah Berenger Gordon. I say here. Mm-hmm. The requirement, I'm quoting from you, the requirement that they appear in court to testify about the intimate details of their married lives threaten their very self-identity as respectable women of the 19th century. Back to that, the whole idea of um, that this is not, is uh, they were often uh, called common common, uh, prostitutes and concubines. Uh, that's probably come out in, in, in earlier, uh, earlier podcasts, right, Lindsay? 
Yeah, we've talked about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Back to Gordon. Uh, most important, however, the actions of these women who were courageous from their perspective of their co-religionists, but contemptible to outsiders, challenged their, their, their status as passive victims. It was, and then, uh, so basically it was startling in the 19th century to, to 19th century suffragists in particular that Mormon women who were empowered with the right to vote uh, for over a decade, didn't use it to eradicate polygamy. Um, and so Gordon continues, by the mid-1880s, Mormon women were revealed as active participants in the perpetuation of polygamy. They could hardly be treated as innocent victims. To federal officials and to many anti-polygamists, Mormon women required punishment as well as pity. And she goes on to... Uh, Sally goes on to talk about uh, the fact that their physical and verbal evasiveness, going underground, using aliases, committing perjury, conveniently forgetting, uh, refusing to testify, uh, transform Mormon women uh, in the eyes of their anti-polygamy co- contemporaries from victims into moral agents. So Sally, I have a question about this. This is a conflict when talking about any sort of feminist issue in general. I know that, you know, when white American Mormon feminists try to talk about Muslim feminists being victims, there's a lot of problems with that. And, and I think that that same sort of formula applies here when we talk about these women in the past, because like Lori said, there are these two choices where we want to make them heroes or we want to make them victims. But if we want to apply this same rhetoric to current practicing modern day fundamentalists, it's easy, especially for Latter-day Saints, to say, oh, that's really gross. They don't know what they're doing. They're being coerced. And there's this idea of con- informed consent. So can you kind of contextualize what you think, how we could sort of look at these women? Because I was shocked. You know, I started this podcast thinking I'm going to, you know, it's a feminist principle to sort of respect these voices. And a lot of these women were big you know, proponents for polygamy. And then I read their diaries and they were just heartbroken by this. It was they so difficult. Yeah. yeah. So tell us how you contextualize this. I will. Um, and I hope I, I hope I can, hope I can bring alive for you the, the many ways that I changed as I was working on this topic. So one of the things I began with was the, um, assumption among anti-polygamists that polygamy and slavery were really closely allied and that um, the claim by slaveholders that their slaves actually liked it, <laughs> um, you know, we still laugh at that today. Um, it, it, it was disproven again and again and again. And among anti-polygamists, because they believed so deeply that no woman would or could consent to her sexual enslavement through polygamy, they were stunned to see women actually standing up and claiming um, pride in the practice and a right to the practice. Then, um, as you very helpfully say, Lindsay, the internal sense of many of these women about their own personal happiness within marriage um, was, to say the least, complicated and, and often 
quite depressed, even harrowingly so. And, and, and for my own self, the way I uh, came to peace with the topic um, was really focusing on religion, um, on that eternity quotient um, that we talked about a moment ago, because um, the relationship between the sacrifice, and you could call it misery if you want, but between the sacrifice on the one hand and the exhilaration on the other, the, the idea of, of, of giving up so much for your faith um, in anticipation of a great reward and really was what motivated women and I think often motivated men in the same way um, who most of the time were horrified um, to learn of the practice of polygamy early on um, but wrestled with it as a religious question more than a social question. Yeah, I have a great quote uh, by uh, Nellie White in in uh, the contemporary newspaper account, and she says, um, in talking about her case to to a reporter, "What harm have I done to anybody? If we believe polygamy is necessary for the salvation of our souls and think it is a religious duty to go into it, whose business is it? I'd like to know. If a husband and wife agree that another wife shall be taken into the family and a young girl agrees to become that wife and views such a marriage as a matter of salvation and religious duty, do you think it wrong or anybody's business to interfere with that arrangement? So... That is a classic defense. Yes. Um, in other words, that we have this enormous private space in which we conduct our family relations. This enormous private space. Um, uh, and um, nobody can intervene with that. It's still a very powerful argument. Um, the, the sort of, uh, the idea that there's this whole swath of human endeavor is that governments have no business messing with. Um, that is the classic defense. Yeah, and, and contemporary scholars, I mean, uh, still, uh, particularly uh, contemporary feminist scholars, wrestle with the problem of agency, of, uh, you know, of choice with, within conservative religious uh, traditions even now. So, I mean, I, we can talk about it then. We can also talk about it now. Uh, most of the time when they talk about agency, they talk about usually what we, we often interpret, uh, agency as being resistance to norms, um, especially patriarchal norms. And so we have problems when we talk, when, uh, women's acts that sustain traditional religions aren't viewed as, as constituting agency, right? Oftentimes. And I struggle with this as a Mormon feminist. Um, you know, my bias is to not see them as having, is, is not to allow them that agency. I don't know. Sally, did you find that it was really, you had to really struggle with that when you were dealing with this? Um, for me, the biggest issue, and I'll be honest about this, the biggest issue for me in um, in working on Latter-day Saint history was coming to grips with the fact that, um, um, for example, it would never hurt my feelings today that someone said my great-grandfather had been a really horrible human being. Mm-hmm. It's just a different approach to ancestry 
and to the past. So one of the things that became most important for me was understanding not only that there's great spiritual rewards to this practice uh, for many women, um, and also that their descendants are deeply invested in understanding it that way. So mm-hmm. those things are connected. The incredible vibrancy of the past, whenever I'm talking to the Latter-day Saints, just hits me over the head. And it's great for a historian. <laughs> Honestly, we love that. Um, but it, but it is really different, for example, than within, say, my own Episcopalian church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a different uh, approach. I, I have talked about this many times on the podcast. I grew up, you know, my mom dressed us in pioneer garb and we went from town to town telling pioneer stories for, you know, firesides and things like that. So I really grew up with that. And on my bookshelf are all these sort of romanticized pioneer histories, right? They're not academic at all. And that was history for me. That's what I grew up. So when I started studying uh, fundamentalism, which is where I'm at in my research right now, and realizing that it was so very similar to my ancestors, and yet being taught that fundamentalists are weird and gross and wrong, and finding the connections, that was that was really difficult for me. I was surprised how difficult that was to sort of connect the dots and say, oh my goodness, they're living very similar to what I am taught was wrong. I can imagine, yeah. Well, and and again, back to this whole issue of agency, it's, it's, uh, there's a, a, a Mormon scholar, Amy Hoyt, who uses the work of Saba Mahmood to talk about, you know, how, as she said, you know, it's difficult to locate agency when, when somebody is compliant with cultural norms. And so what she says is that there's a agency often includes a simultaneous spectrum of behaviors that fall between the poles of complete autonomy and limited freedom. And one thing that strikes me also as a as a student of religion is that we need to um, talk about agency within society, but we also need to think about agency within religious life. So explain explain that a little bit more for us. What would be the well, difference? One of the things that I have uh, thought about at, at at some in some depth is the ways that we construe, for example, um, the fact that um, Mormon women were particularly vulnerable, especially plural wives, to to greater poverty, to increased prosecution, to less respect around the country, um, we think of that as them being victims. Um, but we also have to understand that within Mormon faith and practice, they had positions of great power and respectability so that in some sense they could be really accomplished religious agents even as in society um, they were not they were viewed as victims well and and i mean even in society i mean these are mormon women that's the irony of this uh, of the the of mormon plural wives during this period they had the right to vote and they also you know and and i think that and they also were uh, took part uh, participated in the public discourse was which was really interesting during the 19th century i think and and i think it in certain ways it it uh, politicized these women and gave them they had a they had a public platform that a lot of women in the 19th century didn't have so 
I think there's something, having a public platform changes you in some way. So there is a sense of self that you get from that, even if it's in the defense of, if you, boundaries on that, on, on, on your agency. I agree with you. sense? Yes, I agree with you, Lori. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in some really terrific new scholarship, I'm thinking Claudia Bushman and Kathleen Flake, um, is that they're focusing on a bandwidth of elite Mormon women. I mean, the, the women who had this public platform, um, and who were powerful controllers of their own homes, um, and who had come to terms with plural marriage in ways that, um, might surprise us later, right? That, um, uh, yes, they might have had, um, misery in some of their diaries, uh, but they were also really good at deploying very powerful arguments and getting a lot done, um, and controlling big households. So I do think that, um, one of the things that's important to do is, is to realize that in the 19th century, it was the elite who were involved with polygamy for the most part. Whereas in the 20th and 21st century, um, it's, it's really much, much more common, um, to find, uh, social outcasts and, and even, um, you know, one of the great ways that prosecutors find polygamists now, uh, is because they collect too many welfare checks. Mm-hmm. So it's really a different, a different population now. Yeah. And that's an important argument or, uh, point to remember when we're talking, it's sort of this classist uh, context to keep in mind because, you know, I'm researching some of the Danish immigrants right now, right? And and it's really hard to read their history because they didn't speak English and they didn't have a lot of written history in English. And so their experience would be very different from, say, a literate, educated, connected Salt Lake City pioneer woman than someone who had immigrated from, you know, Denmark. Right. Right. Excellent point. How's your Danish? Uh, not well. Not good. <laughs> I, and it's really frustrating because they all have the same names. You know, all those pioneers come and Hanson. yes, yeah, and and they're all my people. Those are my people. But it, oh gosh, it's it's hard to untangle. Yeah, it yeah. is. And you know, again, I I struggle with you know how much. I mean, 19th century women, all 19th century women had to, uh, had to deal with, uh, you know, the very real bounds, as I say, of, patri- of patriarchal culture. It's interesting that what makes uh, polygamous wives interesting is that they had this public platform at a time when, when women often didn't. And again, like I said, it, there's something radicalizing about having that public platform. And so you have to, basically, you have to, it, 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 for me, it's a really struggle. And I also, I mean, I think Mormon women presently struggle with this, this whole, I struggle uh, also with the, the whole idea of Mormon women presently. I mean, I, it, we, we're, we're part of a religion. Oh, Sally, do you have to go? I'm sorry. In one more minute, but I'm enjoying this so much. Tell me, tell me okay. what you're, but what you're, what I was going to say is I, you know, I struggle to allow my sister's agency when they don't, when they don't see some of the structural inequity that I see in the church. And so as a Mormon feminist, I have to, I, you know, I have to keep reminding myself that, that there is agency in compliance. I can't deny them that agency. But what's, what, I guess what, what I struggle with is making sure that, that I articulate 
that that somebody has to articulate the bounds uh, and and the that that there are bounds to agency in patriarchal institutions that those bounds are real and to ignore them is is problematic as well but that doesn't just but recognizing those those bounds to agency those structural bounds to women's agency even in contemporary mormonism does not completely does not negate the the women's agency uh, when they're compliant to those norms. I agree entirely. That was very well put. And I hope you will both um, accept my thanks for including me and forgive me for running off to my next meeting. Thank you so well, much. Thanks so much for coming on. What a on. pleasure. Lovely talking yeah, to you. Yeah, anytime you want to come back, you're always welcome. Okay, thank you. I'll take you up on that. Bye. So, yeah. So, so Lori, I have a question for yeah. you. Um, this is a complicated question. So, like I said, I'm in the fundamentalist, uh, scope of my research right now. And it's, right. there's some dark stuff in it. Now, right. fundamentalism is a broad brush. There's a huge spectrum. Right. But would you say that that, that theory of agency would apply as well on that spectrum all the way down to the worst of it? Yeah. Because, I mean, what, what I, what was, what's, problematic and and in, in most of our histories really i mean uh let's see i'm not an expert uh you know i'm i'm not an historian of the 19th century uh this i i took up this study primarily because these i i i read a line somewhere that women had gone to jail in the 19th century for polygamy related crimes and i thought what i'd never heard about this and so i i i went to the territorial prison records uh, to document the cases, and I found, uh, you know, an, an old uh, uh, history, uh, Mormon uh, uh, Whitney's history of the church, and uh, and and searched for their cases there. And then I, I basically scrolled through. This was years ago when I did research for this. Scrolled through tons of microfish to uh, uh, around the dates uh, uh, on the dates surrounding the the times they were I Whitney mentioned that they were incarcerated and I was able to find these contemporary accounts I the, the contemporary accounts are interesting as I, I read the Nellie Harris you know assertion I mean these are women who who, who were in this closed system and had to deal with these, these, uh, these were women who, I, I don't want to use the term used because I don't want, you know, they, they were compliant and they participated. And I don't want to deny them agency by using that term. But they were, they were seen and in contemporary accounts. And, and we still tend to, I think, see Mormon polygamous wives as either, as you say, totally heroic, and without without bounds to their agency, you know, in in uh, in Mormon accounts of of polygamy, or we see them uh, uh, from the outside as as so as only pawns in a system. Well, and I think it's a frightening prospect for all of us to sort of reckon with that our agency, that our compliance, can actually be used against us, can actually be used against the greater good even when we think that it's not. And that's, I mean, we're all guilty of that in some form or another. And that's a really complicated aspect of this, right? Right. And, and of course, it's, you know, because we have these two narratives that are both false in some way. Absolutely. You know, we really need to, we need to, we really need to rethink how we've dealt with this. 
and 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 we need to marry the two. We again, um, there was a conference done actually a few years ago um, on Mormon women in agency at the University of Utah, and I found it really interesting. But my problem with uh, it was. My problem with that is that is there wasn't enough talk about the very real bounds on women's agency in a patriarchal community. There there are structures that are that work against women's agency. You there are structures within a women's agency uh, within which a woman women have to have to operate. That that and but but we also need to recognize that in saying that we're not denying them uh, agency either. Yeah, that's important context. And, and that's the, that's where we need to operate when we talk about in our histories, when we try to be truthful about women's history, particularly plural wives, the history of plural wives. We have to acknowledge those bounds to their agency, but also acknowledge their, acknowledge their complicity. Yeah, and and I think that that's the hard thing, especially as we're going to be talking about some of the darker fundamentalist sects. It's mm-hmm. it gets really like there's such a temptation to do this, and I, you're right. Well, and even in that work, you're going to find there are some sects where women's well, where you know it's pretty clear that women's agency is 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 really limited. That the the bounds of their agency, uh, I mean, you can you there are bounds and there are pounds, you know. So there are some uh, uh, polygamists, probably more the independent polygamists, uh, fundamentalist communities, where women's agency is it's is the bounds of women's agency are, are drawn much broader. Absolutely, yeah, and and, and so I I just appreciate you bringing this context because it's so important when we're discussing this, and it's. It's a very Mormon narrative. I know it's a very human narrative, but Mormonism sort of amplifies this of this black and white thinking, these binaries, and we, we do it all the time and we apply it to everything, especially, like you said, in these pioneer narratives. So it's really important. Right. And again, I, you know, as I was trying, admitting to earlier, as a Mormon feminist who sees starkly though the bounds of agency, what, what I would say the bounds of agency in our, in our, uh, present structures. I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, I, I, as you mentioned, I, I'm, I've been pro-ordination for years for women and primarily because I think, uh, you know, it, if, if you leave out half, half, leave half your uh, adult population out of the decision making process, you know, it's, it's not good for, for the institution, I don't think, because you're basically not using all of the talents and abilities of, of half your membership. It also also circumscribes will, women's ability to to be actors in authentic actors yeah, within the community. It, yeah, and this is this is a whole interesting, you know, discussion in sort of feminist theory. But this idea of gender essentialism and use you know locking women into roles and then saying that we need to use half of those those talents. And it's it's interesting because when you don't, you further lock women into these roles. And it limits, it limits their scope of, uh, identity. It limits their scope of knowledge. It limits their scope of involvement. And, and it limits their ability to use talents that supposedly are God given. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's the sort of interesting, uh, kind of As contradictory one, part one, of this. One Mormon feminist from years ago, uh, you know, what does a woman who's born with the talents of a Moses do in a church that won't recognize those talents? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, it, 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 these, these questions, these questions persist. But, uh, you know, hopefully we take a nuanced view of them now in, when we look at the contemporary church, but we, sh- we need to re- bring that nuanced view. Uh, and I end my, my study basically with calling for a more nuanced view of, of Mormon plural wives than the sort of official heroic narratives versus the narratives of, of, uh, you know, the pity narratives, if you, if you will, of, of, uh, um, in, of the, uh, other than Mormon sources, some of the other than Mormon sources that we really need to, to look more nuanced at their, at their, the lives of these women. Um, do you want, to, do we want to talk about a few of the women? I, I actually had, had hoped to, because you, naming, naming women is important. I, I thought it might be important to name names. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, just so you know, the episode before this is going to focus on a few women whose lives were sort of affected by the manifesto. So oh, I think this ties in really nicely with that. Yeah, I, I don't have time to tell all the stories um, uh, relate, uh, of the women who were incarcerated during this period, um, but I, I want at least to take a time, take a moment to mention all the names of the women in my study: uh, Annie Galifant, Belle Harris, Nellie White, Matilda Lundstedt, Lydia Spencer, Lucy Devereaux, Elizabeth Ann Starkey. Elizabeth Sha- Eliza Schaefer, Isabella Adam- Adamson, Anna Eliza Brown, and Hester Hendrickson. These are the names of the women in my study, and the and the um, and I I give some uh, and I tell their stories. Can I can I tell you something hilariously sad though? When you were reading those names, I went to that like mormon knee-jerk reaction where i hear like you know sad trumpets in the background as you're reading their names as if they're (laughs) martyred women sorry okay go ahead well they you know some spend only a matter of days behind in the in prison some uh some spent months um and their their cases always uh garnered a lot of attention uh, in the press, both in the non-Mormon and Mormon publications. It was not a popular thing to do to, uh, to uh, incarcerate women during this period. Uh, as I mentioned, there were, there were no provisions initially in the penitentiary for, to house women. You know, uh, the, the Tribune, in fact, early on said, this is something, early on in the prosecution said, said there isn't, you know, there isn't, there isn't a place really to house women in the penitentiary, which thing needs to be, uh, corrected <laughs> in anticipation of, the, of, of other women going to the, going to jail. But, um, I read a little bit from Nellie White's account, you know, as Sally said, her story, uh, and her, her, Defense of polygamy was, was very, it was, I mean, it, it was quite common. That was a con, uh, in, in, during this period. Do you want a few stories? Yeah, absolutely. It probably would be worth a discussion, uh, Lindsay, to, to tell you a little bit about Nellie White and her case. It, uh, her, it's a, it's sort of, ex- 
a good example of the cases that I examine. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about her and then maybe reread the passage that I read before. And we can talk about that a little bit if you'd like. You can... Um, among the questions, uh, I thought that would be interesting too, that you can get an idea of the questions that, what, that were asked um, the women when they were uh, hauled before the courts. So among the questions asked Nellie White, uh, uh, who, who was a 19-year-old uh, music teacher from Summit County, um, were, have you ever gone through a rite of ceremony mar- of marriage with Gerard Roundy? Are you his plural wife? In are the relations existing between yourself and Gerard Roundy, those of husband and wife, do you decline to answer because it is a fact that you are his wife or are not so? Have you ever been in the endowment house? Do you know who are the officiating priests or officers in the endowment house? So those are some of the recorded um, recorded questions that, that were asked, and she refused to, to answer them. And the judge informed her that the the questions were proper. Uh, she remained unwilling to answer the questions, and she was thereupon ordered to con- uh, confined to the penitentiary until she complied, or the uh, or was released by the court, or as I said, the the uh, grand jury was was released. The interesting thing about this is the grand jury could be kept in session just to keep a non-compliant plural wife in jail. So there wasn't, there wasn't a limit, necessarily a limit to the amount of time a, a, a grand jury could be the session of a, jan, uh, of a grand jury. In fact, in some of the cases, the, the Deseret News went crazy over the fact that, uh, you know, that these, these grand juries were being, um, not being dismissed just to keep plural wives in jail so they would comply. So anyway, after the, after the proceedings, uh, where, and before White was, was confined in the penitentiary, she talked freely with, uh, the Tribune reporter. And I'll give you a sense of what, what his, the Tribune reporter's account was like. Quote, she is quite a fluent conversationalist, he reported, refined in her manners and a woman upon whom one man might well lavish his whole love instead of only one third. Unquote. Uh, during the interview, White spoke lightly about her predicament uh, initially. When asked if she could stand to be imprisoned as long as Bell Harris had been uh, imprisoned before her, she said, well, I think I can. I'm quoting her. I can stand it as long as they can. It won't be much harder for me to be confined in a penitentiary than in a schoolroom. <laughs> a schoolroom, she said. Wow. It, <laughs> Is a sort of jail anyhow. So she, she sort of answered it in a rather flippant way. And then later she became more, more reflective, uh, and commented to him about the questions asked her. And this is the, the, the complete quote that, um, uh, from which I read a part before. I was surprised that so many intelligent men as composed that jury would try to confuse and question me, a lone woman, as they did. I'm no coward, and they'll find it out. They can frighten us Mormon women, and it's no use for them to try and do it. What harm have I done to anybody? Again, that quote, If we believe polygamy is necessary for the salvation of our souls and think it is a religious duty to go into it, whose business is it? 
I'd like to know. If a husband and wife agree that another wife shall be taken into the family and a young girl agrees to become that wife uh, and views such a marriage as a matter of salvation and religious duty, do you think it wrong or anybody's business to interfere with the arrangement? Now, I think that that quote is sort of worth picking apart a bit. Uh, first of all, she uses the sort of lone woman. I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm just a woman. Uh, and, uh, and she initially introduces it, uh, to, to sort of, uh, to, to point out the injustice. Okay. But then she asserts, I mean, immediately after that, she asserts, I'm no coward. So there is this sort of, uh, buying into the rhetoric of women, women as, as not as actors, but then asserting her role as, uh, uh, her ability to act. Didn't you think that was interesting? Yeah. And then, um, so I, I found that really interesting in this, in the quote. Um, and then the other, uh, one of the other things that, that really emerges in this is how important polygamy was to their notions of salvation. I think, uh, uh, Kathleen Flake in particular has pointed out that, that, um, that polygamy was seen as almost as essential, if not as essential, as baptism uh, during this period. Absolutely. I've argued that even, you know, Brian Hales is a scholar that will argue that it that it was not essential, but clearly when you read these women's diaries, they believed it was. That's, that's the primary reason. I mean, Sally, uh, in, in looking at it too, as she said, this was the primary reason they talked about doing this. They saw it as a religious duty. Yeah. And then you also get at the very end, I mean, you get it where she said, and a young girl agrees to become that wife. Uh, if you've, uh, Todd Compton has done work on the, on the, you know, ages of, age of marriage. Have we, have you talked about that previously? Uh huh. And the fact is with polygamy, especially in, in a society, I mean, we, we have a lot of immigrants coming in, but it's a relatively closed society in a certain way. And, and in polygamy, the, the hard thing is, is you have to keep going. Um, uh, men have to keep, uh, uh, marrying younger and younger because, because you're run, you run out of, of women. And, uh, we think in the 19th century, we have this sort of notion in the 19th century that women, ah, oh, women just married younger then. But Todd Compton's research has, has pretty much shown that, that that wasn't necessarily the case. That in the Mormon community, especially, uh, you know, uh, as the longer polygamy lasted, the, the younger and younger became the, uh, wives. I know in my own, in my own family, for example, with my, uh, my uh great grandfather on my mother's side uh uh he, you know his first wife was very close to his age his second wife was somewhat close to his age his third wife uh he was he was in his 40s and she was 16 that's my my great grandmother so i i think that pattern is pretty is haven't you found that that pattern is especially with the later wives they they marry younger and often marry younger women. Oh yeah, yeah, there's been studies on this. So Yeah. It's almost always the case. So, it interesting though if we uh, if we take just a, a comment like like a one I read, you can parse a lot of information and uh, glean a lot of information out of there, don't you think? Yeah. 
So well, anyway, that that's uh, that gives you a sense of some of the questions that were asked and some of the uh, asked of these women and and their sort of uh, noncompliance. Bell Harris Nelson's story is is one of the most documented. She was the second woman to be to be uh, incarcerated, and she's the one, as I said, who left a, a penitentiary diary. Do you want to hear her story, or uh, you tell me what how much yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that, and then we'll wrap it up. That'll be a good one. Okay. So Bell Bell Harris left, uh, as I said, left her penitentiary diary. She, um, I. Th- my sense is from the 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 uh, biographical information that her brother wrote about her is that is that um, her father was not keen that keen on polygamy. She they moved out to a a, a, a ranch um, in central Utah that was somewhat away from the norm. It became sort of a a stop for the stage. Um, uh, that's Salt Lake City, uh, you know, stages between Salt Lake City and, and Southern Utah. Um, and she claims, she complains in, in, in her, in, in often complained about the fact that her only suitors out in this sort of river bottom land in, were, uh, shepherds whose beards, she said, were close, were dangerously close to graying. So you can imagine, uh, you know, her, her, she she didn't have a lot of suitors. There, there weren't a lot of men available out in that in this area where she was living. And when a stage came by carrying uh, a very charming man named Clarence Merrill, he, he happened to be married, but obviously it didn't matter at this time. And uh, he was well connected in Salt Lake. So this gives you sort of an insight into at least her life. So she chose uh, Clarence Merrill, and uh, they began to write. And he uh, they he asked her to be become his plural wife, and they were they were sealed uh, in the late eighteen seventies in the St. George and St. George. And um, but she had she had dreams of becoming. She was always chastised for reading romantic novels. She. She had visions of going to Salt Lake and getting out of, out of central Utah. But he ended up depositing her on a river bottom ranch in central Utah. And he visited her only occasionally and, uh, you know, just enough in certain time, ways to get her pregnant. She, uh, had a couple of children. Um, her father sent her, sent her brother to live with her because she needed help on this ranch. And Merrill was was absent most of the time, and so uh, I think she she talked about uh, being really frustrated frustrated with the whole the futility of the whole whole thing. She said, "I didn't mind the work; it was just the utter futility of my situation that I couldn't bear." And so um, by the by uh, 1882, she decides to uh, she she counsels with her church leaders, and they. They, uh, she decides to divorce Merrill. And this is, again, just as, as we, as we mentioned, this is just, uh, after the Edmonds Act has passed and they're really st- starting to try and, uh, and make, and they, they finally have a law that has some teeth, both, uh, both, uh, legislatively and judicially. And so she became, becomes sort of a, a test case, if you will. Uh, where they think, ah, here's a woman who's obviously 
disgruntled. She divorced her polygamous husband. Maybe she'll testify against him. So she's subpoenaed to testify against him. And she goes to, I think, my sense is that she goes not knowing what she's going to do when she goes to court, but she's met with crowds of people cheering her on. And if you're met with crowds of people cheering you on, you on, are you going to, are you going to comply or not? Or are you going to choose to be the, you know, not comply? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? It's a complicated situation. So uh, she had people uh, cheering her on and sort of saying, you know, uh, as she goes to court and she refuses to testify. The irony is she finally makes it to Salt Lake, but it's in shackles. <laughs> And she's put into prison where she, um, where there wasn't a place. Uh, she's, she's taken to the, the penitentiary and she's put into, uh, she's incarcerated there. There isn't a place for her. The first night, for a few nights she was there, she was in, locked up into, in, in a, uh, in a dining room at night. And she, she took her, she had a nursing baby, so her baby went with her. Uh, to the penitentiary. This wasn't, uh, this was, wasn't uncommon for the women. Some of them took nursing babies with them. Um, she was quite, I mean, again, she makes it to Salt Lake in, in shackles, but she also becomes the object of a lot of attention. She finally gets all of this attention, and she's visited by uh, all the major Mormon dignitaries.